welcome listeners to Connect the Dots. I'm Allison Rose Levy, and I'm here with you every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network. Each week on Connect the Dots, we connect the dots between what's going on in our communities, in our society, and on the planet. Um, and we talk with different authors, experts, journalists, advocates, economists, scientists. Um, filmmakers and people all across the spectrum about all of the things that are going on on so many different levels um, that affect and impact our lives, our communities, our health, uh, our society, and the ecological balance of planet Earth. Uh, I'm originally a reporter on health, the environment, and food policy, Um, so that's kind of the ground nexus, but of course we do also talk a great deal about politics because, you know, uh, these are not problems that people can can solve individual by individual. Um, On today's show, I'm delighted to have a returning guest, Bronco Marchetich. He's a Jacobin Magazine staff writer and the author of a new book, which we'll be discussing today, Yesterday's Man, The Case Against Joe Biden. Um, so Biden will be our theme today, and there certainly is a lot to unpack, uh, both in terms of uh, his history, which yesterday's man delves in great depth, giving a really complete um, portrait of you know this individual, as well as the current issues, both in our world uh, and in the campaign, um, that are relevant um, to the vote the Democratic nomination, um, and the next presidency in 2020. So welcome back, um, Bronco, to Connect the Dots. It's great to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, um, you know, we have a situation. I mean, the one thing about your book, Yesterday's Man, that kept, uh, if there were two words that kind of kept coming up for me as a kind of overframe beyond, you know, the individual policies. Um, they would be uh, opportunistic <laughs> and, um, you know, changeable. Um, so, you know, it, it seems that in, in some kind of strange way, Joe Biden presents as one thing, and people have formed an impression of him based on his personality and and not really having access to or or recalling the kind of information that you have detailed so brilliantly in this book. Um, And so there's a a real confusion and lack of clarity about who he is and and what he stands for, what he has stood for and what he has done, um, and what kind of president uh, he would be if he were to become nominated and be uh, and, and win the presidential election. Um, you know, I mean, there's almost like he has this very public face that people feel they know, but there's just a lot behind that. Um, and, you know, the singular thing that you mentioned at the beginning of the book, of course, is this personal ambition to be president uh, and, and just do whatever that might take. Um, you know, having spent this amount of time looking in depth into his history, you know, just before we get into some of the details, what is your own kind of overview perception about him as a uh, politician and a person? Yeah, I mean, it's, as you said, I think that he is uh, most driven by, by his own ambitions. Many politicians are. 
Um, you know, I think we can we can see that in people like Kamala Harris and and Pete Buttigieg in this cycle. Um, people who have really uh, organized their entire lives um, around the goal of becoming a, a major elected official and, and even president. And, and Biden was telling um, people like his, his future first in-laws when he first met them in university that um, he uh, wanted to be president, they wanted to be senator. This was a, a, a long-standing goal of his. He, uh, he actually said later that he had joined law school because it was, as he saw it, the easiest path forward towards a um, uh, towards a, a career in politics. So um, I think that has always been his guiding light. Um, and the problem is that when your entire career, when everything you do is just a way to ascend up the ladder or to further your own personal ambition, um, you can end up doing some uh, really terrible things and making some really ugly compromises in order to stay in power and make yourself uh, politically viable, and I think um, Biden's career is really an example of that. What would you consider, uh, you know, uh, we can talk about several of what you, having surveyed his entire political career, um, view as, you know, his kind of, ug- you know, his uglier, ugliest compromises. I mean, we could cover a couple of those. I mean, what would you start with in looking, you know, in reminding us and looking into that? Probably the most far-reaching is his uh, actions on criminal justice. Um, obviously, as we uh, are fully aware at this point, Joe Biden was one of the leading architects of the uh, system of mass incarceration that exists in the United States, um, not just because of the 1994 crime bill, which actually in the long run um, was not really that impactful. Um, you know, the bullet really started rolling before then. It was really the stuff he did in the 1980s um, and some other stuff he did in the 90s that was that was bigger. You know, Biden um, passed a, a criminal code with the help of uh, Strom Thurmond um, that instituted these harsh mandatory minimums that really exploded the population, the, the prison population. Um, he uh, eliminated parole. He uh, established the crack and powder cocaine sentencing disparity, uh, put a lot of money into uh, policing, into law enforcement, expanded civil forfeiture, which is the practice of law enforcement basically being able to just um, accuse you of committing a crime and, and stealing your, your things. Um, all of this stuff, you know, as, as well as um, some general uh, anti-drug, you know, really tough and drug stuff, um, helped balloon that, that prison population lead to this um, very racist system of mass incarceration. And, you know, Biden was aware of the perils of this because he had been, he had criticized Nixon, for example. He had said that uh, Nixon wanting greater powers to go after organized crime, to, to survey organized crime, he said that was, that was a, you know, uh, could, could imperil people's civil liberties. Um, he criticized Reagan for having tough on crime policies. He said, you know, it costs more to, to send your son or daughter to Yale or Harvard than it does to um, keep someone in prison for a year. And he, and he advocated for less punitive policies. Of course, uh, again, this, um, this changed uh, as the 80s went on. And I think it's a, a, a reflection of the fact that Biden saw this as either a vulnerability for himself, living in um, Delaware, which had a very racist history and, and also was uh, very much dominated by the kind of uh, conservative suburbanite um, crowd that, that I think um, went for Reagan and had gone for Nixon. Um, 
but also he saw it as a way to shore up, you know, to get political points at a time when this stuff was really salient. Um, and, you know, he would, through the, through the 80s and the 90s, even as statistics show that drug use was going down, the crime was going down, Biden would inflame the situation and try and stir up panic um, in order to justify, uh, you know, pushing for more tough on crime stuff. In the 90s, there was a Justice Department report um, in the early 90s, and um, FBI figures that showed crime and violent crime was, was trending downwards, and he said, you know, don't listen to, to the statistics. It's much worse than the numbers suggest. There's carnage going on in the streets and so on and so forth. So, you know, I think that's probably one of the worst uh, <laughs> compromises he's, he's made, uh, you know, really jumping on that tough on crime stuff. Uh, I think another one that we could point to is the Iraq war. Um, you know, Biden really pushed the Iraq war throughout the entirety of 2002. Um, and, and he knew, again, he was well aware of, of the problems that he had said, actually, um, around the same time, we can't just replace a, a despot with chaos, you know. So he he knew that there was uh, potential trouble in this, but he also had to get reelected. And so um, 2002, he's being challenged by by what he felt was a pretty strong challenger. Um, you know, uh, independent outside and analyst said that this is not going to be an interesting race and that that he wasn't much of a threat. But Biden obviously felt differently because the guy could uh, out fundraise him or at least challenge him in fundraising. And so Biden, um, yeah, went hard uh, to the right on the Iraq war. And, you know, the result is not just thousands of Americans dead, but, but hundreds of thousands of, of Iraqis dead. Yeah, that's um, – and, you know, and then he's tried to kind of walk back some of this history. You know, he tries to portray himself as, you know, a civil rights activist and then, of course, that was debunked, and then he tries to say that he was the first person uh, to disagree with, you know, the war after it was passed. I mean, you know, uh, I mean, back in those, I mean, one might think, given his current cognitive status, which is evident but denied and, and hence kind of, you know, mysterious to some people and sort of a bit evident to others, you know, that maybe he was suffering from, memory loss, but is the, um, you know, is the pattern of changing sides on an issue and misrepresenting um, what you actually did and where you actually stood something that is recent, or is it a long-standing uh, pattern in his career? Oh, very much a pattern. Uh, obviously, right now, um, it is you know, up in the air uh, to some extent, is Biden, gen does he genuinely believe what he's saying, even if it's wrong, or is he uh, being dishonest? Um, you know, we, we can't look into the man's soul or his, his mind and, and say for sure, but we can look at the rest of his, his career and his history, and we can see that he does have a pattern of, of dishonesty. You know, I mean, uh, I give this example in the book in, in 1978 uh, when he first went for re-election. And uh, Biden was, uh, you know, first endorsed by Howard Jarvis, who was the uh, father of the Proposition 13 in, in California, this anti-tax measure that's still in the books that they're trying to get rid of now. Um, and he got endorsed by this guy. And Biden released a statement and he said, I'm delighted, you know, that I've been recognized for trying to keep taxes down and kind of trying to keep government small. 
Um, and then a few days later, I went to an event uh, with a mostly black audience. And he said, you know, that Proposition 13 is terrible. And, and I have no feelings either way about Howard Janus' endorsement. You know, uh, if, he, if he wants to endorse me, I can't do anything about it. Um, you know, that's just one thing. There, there's another, uh, uh, there was a, a news story that came out during his first um, Senate campaign which he said, you know, I'm running on the, the, the themes of honesty and integrity. I want to be known as someone who is honest in his political life as well as his public and private life. Um, and in 72, this campaign worker um, resigns. And he tells the press that, that uh, he, he's Jewish and, you know, he had been asked by Biden to write a Middle East position paper for the campaign. And he decided he didn't want to because uh, he alleges that, that Biden had said to him, um, I can't have my own personal views about Israel because those views will be political suicide, uh, namely the the idea that Israel needs to give back the land it had uh, taken in the Six-Day War. Um, and Biden says, well, according to the student, uh, he, he tells him, you know, just, just write something that, that does not accurately portray my views, um, and whatever position I take now, that'll be the, the position I take and I hold for the rest of my political career. Um, you know, Biden kind of denied this, but but not really, um, because he was saying, you know, he said, well, the guy is lying, but then he also said, look, I was just playing devil's advocate, and you know, his campaign said well, there were a lot of ideas being thrown around. Uh, you know, there was a wide range of discussion, um, and so you know, whatever transpired, it is the case that Biden was and has been one of the most ardent uh, and reliable allies of Israel, um, no matter what it does um, throughout the years. Not, not that, of course, Israel has been uh, as kind to Biden back when he was vice president, um, but, but that's another story. Uh, and so there's this con continued pattern of dishonesty, the, the civil rights stuff um, people are very familiar with, but that really is shocking to, be you, to, to wrap yourself in the civil rights movement. Um, we didn't really lift a finger to, to do anything to, to assist it. Um, and his current lies about the Iraq war, I mean, you know, that people can debate whether, whether Biden's really confused or what, but the fact is that Biden has said this lie about his record in Iraq numerous times over the course of 2019 and 2020 so far, and it has been fact-checked by, by numerous outlets repeatedly. You know, CNN has done numerous, uh, multiple fact-checks of this. Washington Post has fact-checked it, and, and a few others. Um, so there's no way that Biden and his campaign are not aware of the fact that, that this talking point has been very easily debunked. And I think the fact that he keeps doing it is a, is a uh, and, and you know keeps insisting that he that he definitely did oppose the wars as soon as it started. I think is more a reflection of this this willingness to say whatever he needs to say in a moment to survive. Um, than it actually is about his cognitive state. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because that's, of course, the signature uh, thing that he kept doing all along, is changing sides, adjusting this. It's like it um, uh, reminds me of the Groucho Marx quote where he says, uh, I have principles, and if you don't like them, I have others. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Well, there's a great, um, there's a, you know, this happened so much during the 90s, Biden, um, you know, it flips back and forth between whether he wants to protect Medicare or not. He, you know, he says that it needs to be cut, then he votes against uh, Bush's budget balancing bill um, that, that cuts Medicare. But then he says again, years later, we need to do something about Medicare, then he switches again. 
Um, and then, of course, you know, once he was finally vice president, he um, he did work to to very nearly make huge cuts in Medicare. But even beyond that, in '95, Biden says, you know, I was going to retire. I was thinking about just leaving the Senate finally. But then this new crop of Republicans came in, this Gingrich uh, generation of Republicans. And man, you know, they got my blood boiling. I can't, I can't abandon ship now. Everything they stand for, I'm against. This contract for America, it only benefits the rich. I have to stop this. So I'm running for re-election. And so what does Biden do the next year? He uh, pushes and ultimately votes for welfare reform, uh, one of the key planks of that contract for America that he was just um, saying had energized him to, to stay in politics. Uh, past his planned retirement. Um, and then not only that, but he, three years in a row, uh, votes for the balanced budget constitutional amendment, um, which basically, as Biden himself put it, in fact, Biden very, very well and accurately described what that amendment would have done if it was, in fact, um, you know, enacted. Um, and he said it would make uh, Herbert Hoover's economic policy and a constitutional mandate. Um, which is very true. It would have completely because it because it requires the budget the the government to deliver a balanced budget every single year, um, and in some versions even made it prohibitively um, difficult to raise taxes. So so you could only balance it through massive massive cuts. Um, I mean, think Biden voted for three times three years in a row. Uh, each time it fell between one or two votes short of actually passing the Senate. If it had been enacted, if that if that was now in the Constitution, think about what that would do to the U.S. response um, to the coronavirus. Now that Biden is saying we have to to quote spend whatever it takes to deal with, um, you know, the, the government would have been completely handcuffed because of uh, Biden's vote. And the fact again, the fact that this was another plank of that contract for America that Biden, um, you know, supposedly said that that was so so energizing for him, so outrageous that he that he had to stay in politics. I, I think really displays the the duplicity that has characterized a lot of his public life. Right. I mean, one of the things that has happened in this whole debate season is that you know we have a whole uh, we've had a whole uh, menu of candidates. I call them the parade of candidates because I basically, you know, from the beginning, having so many candidates and so little speaking time for the people who would turn out to be the principal participants uh, has been some kind of strategy of distraction and diversion, uh, masking as a menu of choices, and many Americans have fallen for that, you know, and, and liking personalities and not really able, having the time or, you know, the, the uh, interest in many cases to really delve further into policies. And so we've seen this phenomenon where when people, you know, candidates discovered that Medicare for All the Green New Deal and other uh, Sanders proposals were immensely popular, then you have people adopting them and modifying them and using those terms and standing up as if they represent them, uh, when in fact they they don't. <laughs> They're going to change them substantively. I mean, it goes all the way from, you know, Buttigieg, who, you know, was openly critical uh, of Medicare for All and opening, you know, openly pushing um pharma and healthcare industry talking points, you know, to people who pretend to espouse it, but then quietly undercut it afterward. And, you know, I think uh, Biden is definitely, I mean, it's not that he wasn't also critical of it, but he, you know, he, he has seemed very willing, one of the ones who's very willing to, you know, 
take the talking points and act like he owns them. Uh, when what he, you know, the history that's described in your book, Yesterday's Man, of what he would actually do in office, um, would probably be very different. And that's hard for people who are not following closely to really understand and perceive, I, I fear, you know. Um, It'll be, you, yeah. yeah. No, no, sorry. Go on, yeah. Yeah, no. You, well, I was just going to say, it'll be, be interesting to see um, what happens. If, if he does win a nomination, uh, what happens in the general election? Because I suspect that we will not be hearing that much about things like the public health insurance option and the Green New Deal and all these other, other policies that Biden has supposedly adopted. Um, I suspect that we will um, not hear about it uh, at all, but, but we'll see. Um, uh, you know, certainly Biden's career does not suggest that it's something that he's, he's taken a lot of interest in. Right. I mean, having followed him and the constituencies to whom he appeals, which consistently over time seem to be white suburbanites, um, as well as thanks to his affiliation uh, with Barack Obama, certain of the older, more conservative black population, um, do you find his sweep, his recent political sweep in the primaries, Credible. Oh, it I mean, was extraordinary. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, I did not expect uh, really this book to even get that much attention. Um, it came out just before South Carolina, uh, mm -hmm. in, in stores anyway. And um, you know, four days later, it was we were looking at a completely uh, different political landscape, which is why you know one of these things that uh, obviously there are parts of the media and definitely uh, certain interested parties um, who are trying to push this idea that the primary is over, it's done. Um, and, you know, basically to, to get rid of voter enthusiasm and I think to, to sort of um, just, just try and wrap things up as quickly as possible, have Biden in the public eye as little as possible. However, I mean, if you look at the way that those things changed um, just in that four-day period, I think it shows that this is a very unpredictable, a very volatile race that, that could flip on a dime. Whether it will is another question, but it has that possibility. You know, Biden's revival in this race was completely uh, out of left field. No one expected it. If, if, I don't know if anyone put money on it. If they did, I'd say that they, uh, you know, were probably pretty pleased with themselves a few days later. Um, but it was it was not something that anyone expected uh, would or even could happen. And so, you know, as we are watching this race upended by not just the pandemic that we are um, that the world is being engulfed in, but also in the way that um, what what that pandemic not, not just what it's going to do to the dynamics of the of the race and what this race becomes about, but also in the actual practical um, uh, realities of, of voting in the middle of a pandemic, um, when it seems like uh, you know Tuesday is uh, or uh, you know this will be this will be after Tuesday, but um, you know it all signs point to the fact that the, the primaries that just happened have uh, have been uh, absolute chaos and possibly a public health disaster. Um, you know, the, the listeners will know more than us at this point. But uh, you know, it, everything could change and be in flux. So I, you know, I would say to people that don't assume that that things have have finished. Uh, Biden's 
Biden's resurrection is, is proof that really anything can happen in this race. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, take on that. Um, you know, let's go into a bit uh, the question of his mental competency. Um, you know, the chief talking point among moderates is that we don't need to look at it. We're uh, prying. If we do, it's kind of none of our business. It's insulting to aging people um, to question um, his cog- present cognitive capacity. Um, a, do you think that uh, it's legitimate and, and necessary to look at it? If so, why? And also, what do you see, having just spent, you know, the, this extended period of time researching this book, looking at his past actions, looking, I'm sure, at tons of videos of his speeches and everything like that? I mean, are you, you know, is this a childhood stutter? Are you detecting... Uh, changes here? Uh, it is safe to say that the Joe Biden of 2020 is a completely different man, uh, at least in terms of his his public oratory, his, his appearance, um, you know, how he behaves, uh, to the Joe Biden of even 2015, um, let alone if we go, if we go earlier. Joe, Joe Biden, you know, I mean, the guy was in the Senate for 36 years. He uh, was later the vice president for eight years. Um, you don't, and I, now he's ranked for president as the front runner. You you don't have a career like that just by accident. Um, you know, he was a skilled politician. He did a lot of terrible things, uh, made a lot of really terrible choices to stay in power, as we as we discussed today. But um, he is someone who who was very good at, at staying in his seat, at keeping his seat, and and you're one of those. Reasons I think is that he was a very eloquent and charming and, and quick-witted uh, person for for most of his life. I mean, even go back. I would invite people to go and watch the 2012 debate. It's on YouTube between him and Paul Ryan, um, or watch any of the debates that he was in in 2007 um, in the Democratic primary, uh, and then tr- and then watch the Joe Biden in some of the debates we've seen, some of these public appearances where he's forgotten, you know. Obama's name and other people's names, um, and and you cannot, to me, make the case that this is the same person. That there's no, nothing has changed. You know, the idea that this is about um, beating up on old people is, of course, ridiculous. I mean, the same people who are saying this one have been attacking Sanders as too old for uh, a year. You know, I mean, there's no uh, self-awareness here whatsoever. Um, you know, it, it, the problem isn't Biden's age. The problem is that he seems he, he he's forgetting. You know, the opening of the Declaration of Independence. He's he's forgetting names and dates. He, he said he was running for the Senate. Uh, I mean, he said in that town hall the other day that, that if he's elected in November a year from now, uh, this is just constant. Um, his his incoherent answers and debates. Um, so this is nothing about um, age. Uh, and I'll remind people that that again that. Many of the people making this claim are um, the same people who have been trying to diagnose uh, Trump from their from their armchairs for you know, the better part of four years. Um, you know, uh, speculating whether he has dementia or something. And you know, listen, anyone who sees Trump in public and listens to him speak, I think it's a very it's it's a totally legitimate thing to ask: is 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 Trump all there cognitively? But in the same way, it's, it's totally, I think, fair to ask about Biden, given what we've seen uh, over the past year. And 
that is exactly what people were doing for so long. Um, it's only now as he's become the person most likely to block Sanders from achieving uh, the nomination, it's only now that suddenly the media is saying this is off limits, that you can't say this, this is ableist. Um, when, when for the better part of a year, they were, uh, you know, constantly speculating about this. So there was open discussion with cable news that, that uh, Biden had lost something in the intervening years. Um, whether this is a stutter, uh, Biden did indeed have a childhood stutter. Um, he uh, overcame it very early on. Um, for his entire career in public life, he has never exhibited signs of the stutter um, because he got over it. He, he's, he, in fact, this is one of the reasons why Biden is known as a, a bit of a windbag in the Senate, you know, just does these ridiculously long speeches, um, sometimes at very inopportune times. And one of the reasons is because of uh, the, the the process of getting over the study when he was a kid, you know, left him with this this love of speaking. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if somebody's suffering from cognitive difficulties, uh, I think things like a study, even if they've been gone for decades, can come back. And maybe that's why we're seeing Biden stumbling over his words and debates and everything. But the stumbling over his words is one thing. A study does not make you forget who you are, former boss and, and apparently best friend, what his name was. A study does not make you um, say that you are running for the United States Senate when you're running for president. A study does not make you forget what the opening of the Declaration of Independence is. Um, and so many more examples like this. It wasn't a study that, that caused him to say, we choose uh, truth over facts um, at one of them. It wasn't a study that made him think that he was in, uh, in Vermont uh, when he was in New Hampshire. Um, uh, last year, so it, that is a very cheap way to to try and insulate Biden from criticism by by casting his um, you know people pointing the stuff out as as a as a supposedly as a as a uh, insult to his disability, um, and I think that you know people can try and do this in a Democratic primary um, and try and try and use that kind of cynical talking point, but in a general election. Voters will be able to see with their own eyes um, what what the press is telling them right now is not true, and and uh, it will be irrefutable. And to be honest, it'll just, if anything, uh, hurt the standing of the press more that they are protecting Biden like this. Um, when you know, eventually, it will be it will be clear they can't hide him from from public view forever. What would you, I mean, I know this is speculative, but, you know, the thing is, what tends to happen uh, in the news cycle is that, you know, each thing that's up right now is kind of a new uh, dynamic uh, area of activity, something we're looking at, something we're reporting on, but then there is also the long view. So, you know, which is where is, you know, given if it is dementia, and, you know, I, I think many people feel it is, you know, there, there are 47 million people with dementia, which means that, you know, if they have anywhere from two, two to five, which is actually a very low count of, um, you know, family members who've been exposed to this, the, you know, this is not, a, it's not like wondering if somebody is an ulcer when you can't see, you know, what's going on in their, in their stomach or whatever, on uh, their gastric system. Um, so this is not, you know, a problem that's hidden from view that no one is allowed to perceive and that, you know, uh, this is, uh, you know, a very and ever more, you know, ever more familiar 
um, problem, you know, health issue that many, many aging people have. It's, I think, 10% of the population or something. Um, so, you know, all the people who are the next generation town who have seen this or had it occur with a spouse or, or whatever, um, you know, have seen this before. And one thing we do know, if it is, in fact, dementia, and it really should be on, um, you know, the Biden camp and those seeking, you know, the Democratic Party to actually provide a clean neurocognitive bill of health rather than tell people they're wrong and allow them to guess. I mean, they, the, the transparent thing to do would be to have him do a workup and have someone come forth. The reason they don't do that is that the report would not be what they want. So my long view question on all of this is dementia is progressive. It, you know, it's a, there's an ongoing degeneration. Um, actually, we may have been seeing that because, if anything, it always seems to be getting slightly worse. <laughs> You know, uh, there have been things all along, but, you know, um, there seems to be more confusion, et cetera. So, you know, we're supposing that he were elected uh, or rather, you know, had the most votes to take to the convention to become a nominee, but his um, mental capacity, you know, had palpably declined, how fit, you know, I mean, he, I mean, the question is, it's not how fit, because we can't guess that. But, you know, what if he's not fit at the time of the convention? What if he's not, you know, less uh, mentally cognizant during the campaign epoch? What about when the inaug- time for inauguration comes, you know, if he is not following the action and really making decisions? You know, we're putting um, – him up against, you know, someone who's an authoritarian and kind of daddy figure to misguided people um, who's blowing it in every direction, but, you know, kind of bluffs his way through it. I mean, what kind of opponent is this, and and what state might he be in, and how could he even lead if this were to be the case, and it continues, you know, the decline continues? Well, we're now at a point in U.S. history where we, uh, you know, what, three presidents in the last 40 years um, have had access to the, uh, the the nuclear stockpile of the United States while going through, uh, well, sorry, two, two presidents, while going through aggressive cognitive decline. Obviously, there was Reagan in the 80s. Um, uh, I think Trump right now, uh, we're definitely seeing uh, signs of this. And if Biden became a president, he would be the third one. Um, and what does it say about American democracy that, that, that back-to-back uh, you would choose two men who are obviously going through, um, through, through health, health issues uh, uh, to, to, to man the most dangerous uh, and, and powerful military in the, in the entire world? What does, it, what does it say about the Democratic Party that they, knowing all this, knowing Biden's weaknesses, knowing and seeing the uh, kind of decline he's he's suffered since 2016, whatever it is, I'm not going to diagnose him, but it's very clear that that he has lost a step. What does it say about the Democratic Party that they are willing to to take the risk of not just nominating this man to be their standard bearer to go up against Trump, but to potentially put him in the White House um, in charge of of this massive, uh, powerful force? Um, what, you know, what does it say about their priorities? Um, I, I think this primary, whatever ends up happening, has been really clarifying um, and hopefully will be clarifying to a lot of people. Um, 
who will see that that you know the the Democratic Party, for all its its talk that Trump is the is the new Hitler, that he's a dictator in waiting, all this kind of stuff, all the stuff that we've heard over the past three years, you know that they are uh, appalled at Trump's lack of decency, his you know the way he belittles people, the way that he has taken down the tenor uh, and and the kind of esteem uh, of the Oval Office, all this stuff. We're about to see that that's, all of that is a sham. And it's, it's a sham just by the fact that they have so aggressively pushed to get Joe Biden um, to be the nominee and potential next president, which goes against almost everything um, uh, that they've been saying for the past three years, particularly the idea that, that, you know, that Trump is this overwhelming, or that they see Trump, rather, as, this, as an overwhelming threat and, and something that is uniquely dangerous. I mean... If that were true, would they really put their hopes in in a candidate as flawed as Biden, not just in the policy questions, but just as a as a campaigner? I mean, you know, Biden Biden is in many ways a weaker candidate than Hillary Clinton. Who say what you will about it, but but Hillary Clinton could you know go toe to toe with Donald Trump in debates, and and she she could be appear a lot more competent than him. Um, was just overall better at handling him. Um, uh, Biden's barely been on the campaign trail, and and God knows what he's going to look like going up against Trump in debates. That that I think will be a very eye-opening experience for a lot of Americans who maybe haven't woken up to the to the um, the gradual kind of imperial decline that the uh, the U.S. has caught up in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, it's you know we're down here in the weeds but looking down the line as you're describing uh you know it, that isn't a welcome thing in the offing uh for any reason <laughs> for you know and it that actually creates a and it, i mean it, it basically builds a, a pre-existing dilemma which is that you know 45 or 46 percent of the population are independents who think that both parties uh, you know, we're doing nothing for the American people who are cynical and don't trust them, who don't participate. Those numbers keep rising, people who just opt out of voter participation because they don't think that they can be heard. And, of course, uh, watching, you know, the Sanders campaign galvanizing millions of people at rallies and all the rest of it um, in order to kind of bring in this old uh, worn-out, <laughs> uh, you know, seen better days and maybe not the greatest uh, guy for the future, you know, you know, sort of drummed into this role has got to be profoundly disillusioning um, to the populace. And, you know, it's not a contest. You know, I think it's a contest where people who, you know, have been subject to influence by MSNBC or like anybody but Trump, anybody but Trump, you know, and they kind of know therefore what to do or you know or what they think is the right thing to do under the circumstances of voting um you know but it leaves a lot of other people in a dilemma and browbeating people toward a um you know in, in a bad choice is is not really what's called for in this incredibly fragile uh, moment uh in our so- societal and global life really um, you know, let's switch gears and talk about, you know, the current events of the last several weeks uh, that are coming more and more to the fore um, with the coronavirus um, and, you know, the handling of it um, by Donald Trump. And, you know, 
what the contrasting styles of uh, leadership and, you know, really the capacity to address it on a, an effective and powerful systemic level um, by, you know, the two uh, Democratic nomination front runners, Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. We'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, they um, have obviously done their, their big addresses on uh, Thursday about uh, COVID-19. And um, since then, they've done a few different events. Uh, Sanders has spoken uh, again, did, a, did an address the day after. Then he did the uh, fireside chat yesterday. Um, Biden did a virtual town hall. I mean, to me, anyone who watched all of these events, um, if, you're, if you're thinking right now which candidate is better poised to to deal with this crisis. There's no question in my mind that, that you would think Sanders, because let's look at what happened with Biden. You know, Biden's big Thursday address, which was meant to convey this, this aura of presidentiality and, and stability, first of all started with, with half an hour of dead air as um, a bunch of uh, workers rushed around trying to figure out why there wasn't sound coming through, why there was some sort of buzzing that was uh, making it possible to hear anything. And um, so Biden actually ended up starting late. Um, then there's town hall the day after, which which has been cast by the media in these terms as, a, as if Biden had, had, by doing a virtual town hall, by, by live streaming himself responding to questions, um, was doing something unprecedented in in, in global history, uh, history and, and in the media, <laughs> that this was something akin to, you know, uh, launching the first submarine or something and you know the fact that it went badly is just a um you know that there was a result of, of him being the first man to walk in the moon i guess um and in reality i mean you know people have been doing and including standards himself have been doing events like this for a very long time and that town hall is an absolute disaster if you you know it's up on the campaign's facebook page you watch it it's four and a half minutes long they get two questions and biden at one point wanders off the screen they had to throw up a, a, an image, a, a campaign logo um, to move away from the fact that Biden had just walked away from the camera. Um, he claimed that he had um, been behind the Endangered Species Act, which is not true. Um, and and that's when he said that, you know, the election, when he's elected in November, a year from now. Um, in terms of the actual specific policy proposals, um, you know, Biden spent that Thursday he, he mentioned, you know, I have a plan, um, and then he said, if you want to read the details of the plan, go on JoeBiden.com and read it. Um, so essentially, I'm not going to lay out what I want to do here. I'm just going to direct you to read this 7,000 long uh, word long plan online, and you can you can figure out whether you like it or not. And when he actually discussed specifics at that address, it was mostly around the issues of testing and around personal behavior. So you know. Uh, don't shake hands, uh, wash your hands, don't hug, um, that kind of thing. We, we need to have more mobile and, um, and, and drive-in testing. We need to have uh, testing everywhere. There was a lot of calls to action without being backed up by specific uh, proposals. You know, there was, we need to get, uh, dig ourselves out of this hole and, and rebuild the economy. We need to surge our capacity to um, deal with the crisis. We need to, we need to, we must, we must. A lot of this kind of stuff, without actually explaining what the government would do, his only specifics were about how the government could increase testing. And it was very much about keeping the, the populace informed so that 
they knew when to test, when to uh, get treatment, and so on, when to self quarantine, so on and so forth. Now, you compare it with Sanders, which you know didn't start at half an hour late, wasn't, didn't have any technical difficulties monitoring it. Started, in fact, almost as soon as Biden had had ended, um, and Sanders laid out a lot of you know things that may sound drastic, uh, but I think in this current moment, absolutely necessary and and really the the only realistic path forward uh, for dealing with this pandemic. He called for, you know, probably most significantly a moratorium on foreclosures and evictions and utility shutoffs, basically making the point that people are not going to um, stay at home if they have to work paycheck to paycheck to be able to afford to be actually able to live in that home. And so we need to take these drastic measures to make sure that they um, that they don't have that incentive to to leave the house. He talked about the need to, instead of just surging the capacity um, to deal with it, which is what Biden said, Sanders actually called for retired medical professionals and medical residents and and any other medical personnel to be mobilized to deal with the crisis. Uh, He talked about the um, the need to obviously do uh, 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 paid leave um, which is a, a long-running demand of his. Uh, Biden did as well, but Sanders also made clear, he specified that it's not just, you know, ordinary workers, but also tipped workers, gig workers, domestic workers. They had to be included in this paid leave bill uh, or in any paid leave um, uh, measure. He uh, specified exactly how much money um, would be given in this paid leave. He talked about emergency lending so that businesses could could do construction, whether temporary hospitals or what, or, and also uh, to produce things like ventilators that are going to be needed and that there's shortages of. Um, he talked about the need to construct emergency um, uh, homeless shelters for obviously homeless populations and also uh, uh, domestic abuse victims, students who are so, uh, quarantined off campus. So, um, you know, there were, there were a few other things. Obviously, he mentioned the Medicare for All proposal, of course, which now has increasing residents. We see that the, the United States' lack of, of such a healthcare system, of a universal healthcare system, is making it particularly uh, uniquely vulnerable uh, on the world sphere when it comes to dealing with, with this pandemic. Um, and, and there were other proposals, but, you know, just that, that suite of things that I listed off to you right there is something that, that mm-hmm. to me, was a very stark contrast to the Biden speech, which, which really did not go as far as any of this. And I really think in his debate tonight, Sanders is, is going to, or uh, as we're speaking tonight, uh, and we'll see whether, whether he does by the time this, uh, this goes to air, but you know, Sanders really should um, hit on this. He needs to do, I think, what he did in Flint, Michigan in 2016 when he debated Hillary Clinton one-on-one. And he, you know, Clinton, who was this very cautious, conservative Democrat who didn't want to say anything that would offend, you know, potentially Republican or Republican-leaning voters, just could not muster up a a um, bold response to what was happening in Flint, uh, Michigan. And it was Sanders who basically relayed the charge. He was saying that the governor should resign. Um, we need to make... Uh, pay back people and pay for their water bills. They shouldn't be paying for, for water if it's poisoning them. Um, he talked about the need to, to get the government in there and to act. He, he talked about the need to get the CDC to check every every um, every uh, man, woman, and child uh, in Flint uh, to, to sort of give relief and, and um, 
a little bit of encouragement to the local population that people were caring about them. So, you know, it took a much more uh, forthright um, position on what the government had to do to get in and, and you know, got a lot of applause from the, from the audience that I think sort of appreciated this much more bold effort um, than, than Clinton was willing to give. And I think this is what he has to do. We'll see if he does it, but I think he has to show that unlike Biden, who, who is not willing to go as far as even calling for, for things like a moratorium on evictions, which, which absolutely needs to happen, um, that Sanders is the one with, with the, the vision and the, and the policies that he's been pushing for years that really fit this exact uh, crisis that, that the world is in right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the other notable difference uh, is, you know, in the one case, uh, Biden is really modeling how he would act as a leader. You know, he's speaking from the podium of authority, and then he's just telling people what they have to do, um, and then providing, you know, uh, in talking about the lack of testing and the need for tests, you know, that's a political jab, <laughs> you know, at Donald Trump, deservedly so, uh, for creating a situation where, you know, we are uh, woefully behind. And, of course, it's not the only area where we're woefully behind. I mean, uh, our whole approach to health care has created a, a shortage uh, in tests, in treatment, in supplies, in health care personnel, in hospital beds, um, you know, uh, to just name a few. I mean, we are totally, you know, funding was cut for pandemics. We're just totally unprepared for this, and literally millions of people could die as a result of it. Uh, and yet, even in that moment, um, Biden is still wanting to speak from the voice of authority to give personal instructions about hand washing, which have already been given first by the doctors and then secondly by everybody else you know on earth. Um, you know, everybody is yeah. passing along the information about hand washing. As somebody, you know, who's reported on health for over 20 years, we need a lot more. You know, for example, don't touch your face. Does that mean right. don't put on sunscreen if you're going out? You know, does it mean don't wash your face? What does it mean after you've brushed your teeth? You know, so these are, you know, kind of off-the-cuff, immediate instructions without there being any kind of full information. So they're really not providing public information, and the public is woefully ignorant about all of this and making an adjustment um, to a health care system which more privileged people might imagine would be for the, there for them, but which won't be there for anyone because of, of this problem. And then on the other hand, you have Sanders, who has th thoroughly thought through you know, the, the economic supports and the infrastructural, uh, you know, needs that would help uh, make this survivable and, uh, and, and less of a kind of panic for all people. And, you know, there, there just couldn't be a sharper contrast, you know, would that the American public could see it. And, you know, as we're having this conversation, I hope you don't mind my injecting this into our discussion of yesterday's man, your wonderful book. Um, but, you know, I was at the DNC 216 convention, and one of the things that was, you know, there were many things that were notable uh, that one perceived there in person that, you know, maybe could not be as easily seen by watching it on TV or whatever. One of them was that, you know, after the anointing of Hillary Clinton uh, and the great celebration with the white balloons of, you know, yay, her moment was finally here, and it was so wonderful from her perspective bouncing those balloons around. Um, it was occurring within a convention hall uh, 
um, that actually also had a shortage. It had a shortage of seats. They were, uh, the, the DNC in managing it, were attempting to, to get more people, donors, friends, whomever, into the hall um, than could be seated. Uh, I know a neighbor of mine who was just, you know, a person sitting next to me, never saw her before or anything, was told not to go to the bathroom if she wanted to return to her seat, you know. So there was this sense of desperate, looming people lined up hoping to get into the hall, and, you know, if you already had a seat, you know, like you couldn't leave, you know, and it was several hours. Then when the uh, festivities concluded and people left, it was a complete chaos. It was one of the worst crowd management um, situations that I personally have ever been in. It showed a complete lack of regard, planning, uh, you know, the people... The public officials in their elegant outfits were whisked away in, in limousines, uh, and the people people were literally trapped in in a mob. Wait, scene. are we um, are we talking about the Democratic Party here? There's no way. Yes. I can't. I can't imagine. I can't. I can't think of any um, example or incident in in the last you know one or two months that that is sort of a uh, an analogy uh, or at least comparable to this uh, whatsoever. Um, no, I mean, you know, the Democratic Party is, uh, we just watch these people create absolute chaos um, in, in uh, primary election after primary election, not just Iowa, but, um, you know, the, the long uh, lines that we've seen in Texas and, and other states and the, the mass closing down now of polling stations to deal with this virus. And the fact that still, they're still going ahead with this and not postponing as, as several states have done. Um, you know, in what will be what will end up being basically a germ bomb um, uh, on Tuesday is is absolutely staggering, and you know I think this is a this kind of thing it's it's a stark uh, uh, contrast in in not just how these two lead but also their, their different political uh, visions. Right, Biden, as you say, it's about personal responsibility. It's about putting the onus on the person. About saying, you know, implicitly saying, if this goes bad, uh, it's it's you know to some extent it's your fault. You were complicit in it. Um, and Sanders right. is is the one who takes a more structural um, uh, uh, look at this, more structural analysis, and says, well, hold on, there's actually there's reasons the way the uh, American economy and society is structured that forces people to make bad decisions and and makes things like this worse. And and you know, interestingly today. Both Biden and Sanders um, posted uh, op-eds on CNN about the uh, coronavirus, about the pandemic, and I just think the, the the different headlines are just a perfect encapsulation of uh, what these guys believe and what they stand for, and really what your what kind of leadership you would be getting if one of them became president. So, for example, Joe Biden's op-ed says the virus lays bare the shortcomings of the Trump administration. Uh, Sanders says, coronavirus highlights the flaws in our healthcare and economic systems. Um, so, you know, very, they're, they're, really their messages boil down to their essence. For Biden, just like Hillary Clinton in 2016, this is all about Trump. Uh, Trump is a, a dangerous aberration. Once we get rid of him, everything will go back to normal. Sanders taking the much more realistic and accurate view of the fact that this is a, a not just about Trump. Of course, Trump has made things worse. 
but this is also a product of, of uh, decades of um, you know uh, evisceration of public health in the United States and, and the, the U.S. safety net uh, that has made it um, well push people into into other precarity and made it a lot more likely that something like this would explode in the way that it has. And by the way, it was Joe Biden who was at the front lines um, making these cuts to the American safety net, making cuts and undermining the um, uh, not just the American welfare state, but the public health system, trying to cut Medicare for decades and decades, um, you know, voting for the balanced budget amendment, uh, all this kind of stuff. So um, in many ways, you know, as I argue in the book, Biden, Biden did, I think, in, in many ways lead us to Trump, Biden and, and many Democrats of his generation. But in other ways, they've also led us to this this moment where this uh, where the U.S. is, is struggling to grapple with this um, pandemic that looks like it may overwhelm. It's um, it's already threatened uh, public health services. Yes, indeed. You know that's a brilliant summation, and you know this has been a wonderful conversation about a very timely book by our guest today, Bronco Mark. Mark- um, the book is called Yesterday's Man, The Case Against Joe Biden, um, and we've been talking about it uh, on this edition of Connect the Dots uh, and, you know, really gotten into all different places in looking at this, you know, at the moment, uh, Democratic Party front runner and the, you know, the, the, the challenges. Uh, on multiple levels, and especially with this pandemic, you know, and the opportunity that still is there to try to uh, redirect rather than have buyer's remorse later, uh, you know, for going with this script of this can be Trump and that's all we need to look at when clearly it isn't. Um, You know, thank you so much, uh, Bronco, for being with us today again on Connect the Dots. Um, It's it's always a lively conversation, uh, and this is a terrific book. Um, listeners, I want to uh, point it out to you. It's a great read. Uh, it's published by Verso Books, um, you know, which we, which authors we often feature here on Connect the Dots. Um, and it really, I mean, it's really actually a great tool for anyone participating in campaigning because you have all in one place. Um, you know, the real history of who this uh, opportunistic person is, as, and, you know, we've also today delved into his current situation. So thank you again, Bronco. Um, you know, it's been wonderful to have you here. Um, and thank you, listeners, for being with us today. Uh, please uh, pass the show along to others. Share on social media. After today's broadcast, it will be available at Connect the Dots. .podbean.com. Stay active in this election. Uh, And until next week's show, Wednesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, I'm Allison Roselevy. Be well. Keep marching forward. Stay safe. uh, And, you know, do do all that you can in our current health emergency. (laughs) 